Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Man, Part 7. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last time we looked at one of the most important of Paul's anthropological terms, namely soma, or body. Today, we want to turn to a second important anthropological term used by Paul in his letters, and this is the word sarks. I've already briefly mentioned this word, sarks, which means flesh. Theologians who are familiar with the word sarks know that in the New Testament, the flesh is often used uh, metaphorically as a term for the evil proclivity which is in human beings. This use of the term, therefore, is not referring to the physical stuff of our body. The scripture does not teach that our bodies are evil because they are material. But the flesh will often be used by Paul to represent fallen human nature. Now this usage touches a very sensitive chord in theology because in Germany, where I studied at least, um, the Apostles' Creed affirms, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh, that is to say, the flesh. In English, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. But in German, it affirms, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh, fleisch. And theologians are quite rightly nervous about any sort of affirmation that the flesh, in the sense of this evil, fallen nature, uh, is going to be the object of the resurrection. Because of this, they're prone to overlook the fact that Paul often uses the word sarks in a morally neutral sense to mean basically organic stuff, the material out of which an animal's body is made, the physical flesh, um, essentially meat, if you will. And in this morally neutral sense, to affirm the resurrection of the flesh is unobjectionable. It is equivalent to believing in the resurrection of the physical body. Let's look, for example, at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 41, for Paul's disquisition upon the nature of the resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 41. Paul, imagining some uh, Corinthian opponent of his doctrine, says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is alike, but there is one kind for men, 
another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are celestial bodies, and there are terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. In this passage, Paul uses three analogies to illustrate the notion of the resurrection of the body. The first analogy is that it is like a seed and the plant which springs from that seed. The body is planted in the ground as it is buried, and then just as a plant that is quite different will come from the seed, so the resurrection body that comes from the earthly body that is sown will be vastly different from the earthly body. It will be a supernatural body endowed with powers and properties that this earthly body does not have. To skip ahead, Paul's third analogy is from celestial and terrestrial bodies. The stars and the sun and the moon all have a different luminosity, which is what the word glory refers to here. Just as these different bodies have different luminosities, so the resurrection body will differ from the earthly body in being more honorable and more glorious than the body that is sown. It is the second analogy that we want to focus on. It appeals to different kinds of flesh. Paul is clearly using the word sarks here in a morally neutral sense, biological flesh, if you will. He says there's one kind of flesh in men. There is another one in animals, and another one in birds, and another one in fish. So here he's using the word flesh in a morally neutral sense to mean basically meat, or the organic stuff of which uh, animals are made. Robert Jewett in his uh, book on Paul's anthropological terms, um, draws attention to the uh, fact in this passage uh, of a striking departure from the technical flesh category and an appropriation of traditional Judaic use of sarks as interchangeable with soma. So here Paul is not using the word sarks in this moral sense, uh, but rather in a non-moral sense, which is interchangeable with soma, or the physical body. So in this passage, Paul is not using the word sarks in the theological sense of fallen human nature. Rather, he basically uses it as akin to the body, the sort of bodies that exist in the biological realm. And it's in this physical sense, then, that the resurrection of the flesh 
is quite unobjectionable theologically. The resurrection body will be a physical body, vastly different from this corruptible, mortal, dishonorable, and weak body that we presently possess, but a body nevertheless. Any discussion of Paul's use of the word sarks? Cody? I mean, I, I know this may not be a, exactly Paul's usage, but I just wanted to comment, though, that uh, in John 1.14, right, where it says, and the logos became sarks, like, that, that seems to be, that's also another instance in the New Testament, it seems, of where flesh is used to mean, like, a physical body. Right, exactly. Because obviously, he's, John's not saying that Jesus, you know, became evil, corrupt human nature, you know? Sure. So, so that's what, sure. that was the first thing I thought of when you said, mentioned how like, right the, the, the very incarnation means literally yeah. in the flesh. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a good passage to draw on. Yes. Thank you, Steve. I I agree with you about morally neutral, but couldn't it also be like the dominion of different uh, state? You know, like the angels left didn't keep their first estate, but left. And so it'd be like limitation. Like you could have the same physical flesh in an animal. A man without knowing the Holy One is like a beast of the field. But he's given different dominion. I'm talking about in the pre-fall state than a regular animal. And then when Christ crowns him, he has another yeah. state. Well, now, if I understand the question correctly, it would seem to me that man in his pre-fall state had flesh in the morally neutral sense that we're talking about. He was a physical, biological creature. But the flesh in the theological sense didn't exist at that point because man wasn't yet fallen. The flesh in the sense of this evil proclivity within human nature that we wrestle against comes into existence through the fall and through sin. So I would say in one sense, the flesh already exists in a neutral sense, but not in the theological sense. All right, Paul's third anthropological term that we want to draw attention to is psuche, from which we get uh, our word psychology and psychic. Um, it means soul. Psuche is soul. And Paul teaches uh, a dualism of body and soul with respect to human being. Look, for example, at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 4:16 to 5:10. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed every day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here, indeed, we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling, so that by putting it on, 
we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we sigh with anxiety. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. In this passage, Paul speaks of our outer nature, the body. He uses the metaphor of a tent, which connotes frailty and transitoriness. A tent is not a permanent dwelling. It's going to be struck. The earthly tent represents our earthly body. He speaks then of the resurrection body that we shall receive as a house not made with hands. The contrast between the transitory, frail tent and this substantial building from God shows the immortality and incorruptibility of the resurrection body in contrast to the earthly body in which we live. In between our death and our eventual resurrection comes this intermediate state where we are without a body. Paul talks about being away from the body and at home with the Lord. He speaks of this state as a state of nakedness. In Greek literature, um, this is a description of the soul existing without its body. Paul says it's not that we want to be in that kind of state. He says we'd really prefer not to be unclothed. That is to say, to have the body stripped away in death and to be naked. Rather, we would prefer to be further clothed. And the verb here has the idea of pulling on top clothing, like a sweater over a shirt, without the necessity of undressing in order to put on that clothing. So Paul is saying here that we'd rather live until the return of Christ so that we receive our resurrection bodies immediately without having to go through the intermediate state of nakedness existing as a disembodied soul. But if we do go to be with the Lord by dying prior to Christ's return and so enter into that intermediate state, Paul says we still are of good cheer because to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that is better than this earthly existence. 
I think that you can see the importance of this body-soul dualism in Christian theology. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the Christian materialist who denies that there is any soul distinct from the body has to believe that when a person dies, that person is simply extinguished. He literally ceases to exist. There is no intermediate state of the dead um, as the soul awaits the resurrection because there are no such things as souls. And it seems to me that such a view is very difficult to reconcile with the teaching of a passage like this, which I think clearly contemplates the existence of the soul in a disembodied state. Now, Paul does not always employ a uniform terminology of soma and psuche, body and soul. In the passage just quoted, for example, um, neither term appears until the very end, when Paul finally uses the word body. Rather, metaphors are used to express the concept. Similarly, sometimes Paul will mix his terms. Look, for example, at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Paul says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit uh, and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul uses three terms, the soma, the psuche, and the pneuma, or spirit, the Greek word from which we get uh, our word pneumatic, as in a pneumatic drill. Paul is here expressing the thoroughgoing nature of our sanctification. Every aspect of human being is to be sanctified. Nothing is exempted. But we should not infer, therefore, that for Paul there is a third immaterial component of a human being, namely a spirit. Um, if the soul or mind is the self-conscious self, the I, then it's bewildering what a distinct spirit could be. It's more plausible to take spirit as a function or aspect of the soul. In any case, what's important is that we are not, in Paul's view, simply material entities. Rather, we have an immaterial component to our being called the soul or spirit, which will continue to exist after the death of the physical body until its reunion with the resurrection body at the return of Christ. Is there any discussion about Paul's use of the term psuche? Yes. It seems to me that clearly Paul is talking to Christians, to believers, uh, yes. and in the discussion you just had, which raises the question of what about the non-believers? What, what sort of a state do they enter into? And that would be kind of an acid test in terms of the point that you're trying to make. Yeah. I think you're, you're right that it, that would be important. And the closest thing that, off the top of my head, that comes to mind here would be um, the notion of Hades. 
or in the Hebrew Bible, Sheol. Um, Hades is not the same as hell, which is Gehenna. Gehenna, or hell, is the final state into which the damned are cast. But Hades, or Sheol, is that intermediate state between death and resurrection. And you have, for example, Jesus in his parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man speaking about how Lazarus dying wakes up in Abraham's bosom in paradise. But the rich man, when he dies, is in Hades and is in torment in the flame. And he uh, begs Lazarus to bring some water to quench his thirst. And uh, the Lord says, no, there's a great gulf fixed between him and you, and none can cross over, even if they wanted to. Now, we have to be very careful, I recognize, about um, using parables to teach Christian doctrine, because parables are meant to illustrate a central point, and you have to be careful not to push them too far. But this parable would seem to show that Jesus believed that unbelievers would exist in this intermediate state of being separated from God um, as they await the final resurrection. Um, so that's a passage that comes to mind immediately. But you're right, our concern here is primarily with believers in Christ. Yes, Taiwan. So Craig, when we witness or share the gospel, our purpose is to bring a person from their fallen state to saved or sanctified state. Um, and this process basically involves three things. One is the anchor of the spirit. The second is the projection of that spirit. The third is the manifestation of the spirit. So I thought these three things may be um, the numa maybe it's the person's anchor, and that when we the, the person's what the anchor anchor yeah the spiritual uh -huh. anchor like we talk uh -huh. about alignment like with God's uh -huh. word um, that we understand what God wanted us to be or what He revealed Himself to be, and and we align ourselves with Him. So it's it's our like the core of our faith or the connection that between us and God. And the, su um, the suke may be the projection. Like we want to anchor from the deceiver, Satan, that deceive us with all kind of um, from the Garden of Eden, uh, Edom, all the way with all kind of deception. We want to move that anchor back into with God. And, and suke is our projection. It's like we want to go there, but we are not, we, you know, we are like Paul says, I want to do good, but I couldn't, right? I'm bound and I'm hopeless. So, so maybe that part is that projection. And then as we mature in Christ, that projection 
gets materialized or manifested more and more in Summa. And so I wonder whether the resurrection is... Did you, now, you said it gets manifested more and more in, in, in Soma? In Soma, in the body. S-O-M-A? Yeah, uh, S-O-M-A? Soma, Soma, yes. Soma, uh -huh. yes. And, and so I was wondering whether the resurrection they are talking about, the fallen flesh become saved and live eternally with God, that process goes through this, this what I talk about, this anchor, this yeah. projection, and this manifestation process. Okay, well, I this mean, is... It's, 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 a, it's a wonder. I, I'm yeah. not... This, this is a very elaborate scheme that you've just <laughs> laid out. <laughs> and I, I guess I just don't see any New Testament basis for this elaborate scheme. I would certainly resist any suggestion that the flesh, as it's understood theologically to be this evil proclivity within human beings, will be in any way resurrected. I'd say on the contrary, it will be destroyed. Flesh in this sense, in the theological sense, is not a thing. It's not a constituent of human being in the way that psuche or the physical flesh or physical body is. It just represents the fallenness, the evil, uh, the God-opposed nature of uh, human beings apart from him. Um, and, and that's something that I, I would say, thank God, will be completely done away with. May I carry on with the discussion a little bit further? Well, I think we should give somebody else a chance to say something, if, if we may. Is there someone else who had a comment? Yes, I see Charmaine does. Could you tell me when Hillop was created? Is that why we have um, Hades and Sheol, that after the yeah. resurrection, then well, Hell was created? Well, this is a, a good question, Charmaine. And I would say uh, that, in a sense, Hell doesn't exist yet. Um, you mean now? It still yes. doesn't exist? Yeah, it doesn't exist now. What exists now would be Sheol or Hades, this realm of okay. the disembodied dead, of souls without their bodies. Uh, and these souls can either be in paradise, like Lazarus, or at That's home with the Lord, as Paul says. Paul says he, he wanted to die and to go to be with Christ, for that is far better. So even in this disembodied state, it brings a closer fellowship and relationship to Christ. And so in that sense, is better mm -hmm. than this present state. But it's not as good as the final state, which will be the resurrection of the body and the complete integration of soul and body in a redeemed humanity. That's the best state. That's what Paul wanted. But you see, he was in a catch-22 situation because in order to get to the best state, he had to go on living in the worst state. And so in order to um, improve the present state, he, he would have to die and go to be with Christ, even though that's not optimal. It's at least better than this. So he found himself in a real catch-22 situation where in order to have the best state, you have to go on living in the worst, which is not very desirable. 
Um, does it's, that answer your question? Yes, and it's very interesting because the Bible says that hell is created for the devil and his angels. Yes, and it does. And the devil's still and, roaming and this around will be in the earth the final here. state that yeah. will be brought about after the um, resurrection of the body. And by the same token, this also implies that, in a sense, heaven doesn't exist yet either. That will be the final state for resurrected believers, the new heavens and the new earth. What exists now is this intermediate state of disembodied existence prior to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. One more. I have the question. microphone. <laughs> ah, okay. She snatched it as Charles went by. Okay. Well, uh, on the on the the Luke verse, I, you know, I, I I'm a believer in Hades for for the departed uh, until the until the end time, the resurrection, uh, and the judgment. But I, I don't think it's a parable. Jesus doesn't describe it as a parable, and a name is mentioned of Lazarus where yes. names are not mentioned in the other parables. So I, I think it's a a correct rendition, but also you could link with it, Jesus went and preached, and also this is a plug for trichotomy, uh, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Yes, uh, there are yeah. other passages yeah. that speak of the intermediate state that one could appeal to. That was one that came to my mind, but um, there is a passage, I think it's in Second Peter, where it says that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey during the times of Noah. That's a very difficult passage to understand. Is he talking there about angels who fell in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, or is he talking about human beings uh, and their spirits, as I think maybe you're suggesting? It's, a, it's an open and controversial question. All right, let's close then with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time that we had together this morning and for the mutual stimulus of thinking about these things. Uh, and we pray that you would help us as we um, wrestle with these issues and struggle to understand uh, a biblical view of man. And so now we commit our upcoming week to you, uh, praying that you would help us to walk in the light as you are in the light and to not turn our foot to the right or to the left, but to walk in the paths of righteousness. For your name's sake, in Christ's name, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.